Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Wally? The Disney Pixar movie Wally? Okay. Some of you may may not remember what the what the movie's about. Um, it's set in 2008-05, the year 2008-05. And the Earth has basically been an abandoned planet because there's been a nuclear holocaust. And um, this major corporation called, by and large, has basically taken over the world. And there's this big ship um, with all these people that are taking, um, basically living on this big, this big spaceship. But the Earth is so toxic that nobody can live there. So they send these little Wally units to go back to Earth to clean up all of the radioactivity decay. And so Wally is looking for a friend. And he finds a cockroach, but the cockroach isn't very much of a friend. But finally, he comes across another robot, and her name is Eve, E-V-E, which is kind of symbolic, Adam and Eve. And so the whole story is how Wally and Eve, two robots, fall in love in this nuclear holocaust where people are becoming so consumeristic with buying up stuff that they don't really know how to have interpersonal relationships. So the people in the, in the cartoon don't know how to have interpersonal relationships with the, the robots do. And so it's really like a modern-day parable on the way our culture is. And so one of the things that the movie really portrays, this is a kid's movie, is how disconnected we can be in our culture because of technology. So the question is, as Christians, do we have a choice whether we're going to get involved in people's lives or not? Can we, can we avoid the messiness of not getting in each other's lives? So tonight, we are going to talk about, and I told my wife I wasn't going to do this, but I probably will. How many of you guys have ever seen, I'm in a movie night mood tonight. How many of you guys have ever seen Princess Bride? Okay, when he goes, marriage, and he's like, wow. Twilwav is what brings us together today. So today we're talking about Twilwav. Okay, we're going to talk about love. Love. So let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And um, since nobody's back there monitoring, can you just make sure it's live streaming? On, it is it live streaming on Facebook? Okay. There's no way for me to know. Usually I have my phone and I can see if it's working, but I'm hoping it's working. So we're in Galatians chapter 5, and um, the past few weeks, um, we've been looking at the issue of sin and the struggle we have with sin, and I said that the, the fruit of the Spirit is not in a vacuum by itself, it's actually in the context of what Paul is teaching in all of chapter 5. And so, um, verse 17, chapter 5, let's just start in verse 17. Everybody there, Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, last week, just to review, um, if you weren't here, Paul gives four categories of sins that he calls works of the flesh. So the first category is sexual sins. Second category is like sorcery and um, like sorcery and idolatry. The third category, which was the largest, is interpersonal relationships, um, relational disunity. And then the last category he gives is drunkenness and orgies. And so the works of the flesh are things that we do that are sinful that come from our hearts, the works of the flesh. Now, go back to verse 16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit. Go down to verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So everything is couched in this whole idea of walking or being led by the Holy Spirit. And then in the middle here, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So let's look at verse 22. But, in contrast to the works of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So now we actually get to the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about love tonight. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to look at each aspect of the fruit in depth. But before we get there, I want us to talk about fruit in general. Why does Paul call it the fruit of the Spirit? He called it the works of the flesh. Why doesn't he call it the works of the Spirit? Why does he call it fruit? Now, hopefully my remote control works. Ooh, it does. All right. Why does a tree bear fruit? Okay, it's a very simple question. Why does a tree bear fruit? Well, a tree bears fruit, come on now, because there is life from within. Okay, so if you think about an apple tree, how does that apple show up? Does it just show up? There's a root system, there's water, there's good soil, there's nutrients, there's sap. It goes out from the branches to the twig and eventually pops up as a blossom on that tree. And so a fruit grows because it has life in it. And there's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Okay? Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 17 through 18. He says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, when we become Christians, Jesus makes us a good tree that will produce good fruit. Okay, so why does Paul say the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the Spirit? So think about fruit for a moment. 
what do we normally want in the Christian life when it comes to spiritual growth? We want a quick fix. Give me a program. Give me just the steps. It's focused on performance. Just tell me what I need to do, what steps I need to do, and then I'll grow. But that's not the way the fruit of the Spirit works. It's not steps that you can do in your own power to somehow produce this. It's fruit that the Holy Spirit produces and grows from within. Uh, Christopher Wright, he's written a book on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I thought he had a good quote. He said this, and maybe it's not. Is it on your sheet? He says, The qualities of the fruit of the Spirit do not focus on what kind of performance we can achieve, but what kind of person we are. Okay? So before we get to love tonight, let's talk about the general characteristics of the fruit. Now, I want you to notice it's singular. Does Paul say the fruits of the Spirit? What does your Bible say? The fruit of the Spirit is, and there's nine things. So is it nine fruits or one fruit with nine aspects? It's one fruit with nine aspects. So let's just kind of talk about general characteristics of fruit. These are not mere personality traits. What I mean by that is, let me just ask you a question. Can non-believers love their family, love their wives? Can non-believers be kind to other people? So non-believers can produce some of these things without any help of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just character traits. I was watching a commercial the other day, and it was very interesting because the commercial was talking about the, the words for love in ancient Greece. They're like, ancient Greece had four words for love, and they were focusing on them, and then they focused on agape. And I'm like, that's not accurate the way they're portraying this, because they make it sound like this was in ancient Greece. The word agape, which was what we're going to look at tonight, that word was not in the cultural language of Greek. That was a word that the New Testament writers made up. They created that word. So agape is a biblical word, not a cultural word. So they, they had four words for love in the Greek language. Okay? So the New Testament writers used the word agape for love, which was not found outside of the Bible in the Greek language of that time. It was a specific biblical word. There are three other words for love that the Greek language uses. So there's philea. We get our word like Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is kind of a lo the love you have towards a friend, friendship type love. Then there's storge. That's family type love, a way of love a, a, a brother would love a sister, a mom would love a child. And then there's eros love, which you probably know what that comes from. It doesn't necessarily mean erotic, but it means a sexual or a romantic type of love between a husband and a wife. But... God alone produces this agape type love. And we're going to talk about what that love is. So the fruit of the Spirit are not personality traits. That person's a gentle person. That person has a disposition to be kind. It's not something that's just a personality trait. Because non-Christians can display these um, from time to time. Okay, the second thing about fruit. Does fruit just pop on the tree all at once? Or does it take time? Okay. So, Christian growth is gradual, okay? We may not want to hear this, but Christian growth is gradual. Here's the, here's the, here's the point. We are all going to grow at different rates. 
and at different speeds. So we can't compare ourselves to somebody else and say, man, I'm not as strong a Christian as they are. Because your Christian growth is your Christian growth, and it's the path that God has for you. And it's gradual. It's slow. It takes time for God to produce this fruit in your life. It may not happen all at once. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord whose Spirit. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, meaning there's different degrees of growth. So it's gradual, it's fruit, it may take a time, and because it's fruit and not just mere window dressing, okay, the third aspect of fruit is that the fruit of the Spirit has internal roots. And what do I mean by that? It's not just outward behavior modification. Um, What it is, is it's more than just... um, personality traits, but it's a, um, it's a deep transformation that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit deep in your heart. It's, it's a character transformation that goes deep. So the fruit of the Spirit, something the Holy Spirit works deep in your heart to change your character. It's not just behavior modification or something you can kind of fake. And this kind of goes along with it. Number four, uh, the, f- the growth of the Spirit's fruit is supernatural. It's not by your own willpower. It's not, called the fruit, it's not called the fruit of your flesh or the works of the Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. So who produces the, 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 the fruit in your life? The Holy Spirit produces it. So it has to be supernatural. So Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is the one, the Holy Spirit's the one working in you to produce this fruit. It's supernatural. And then um, number five, Christian growth is symmetrical. And what I mean by symmetrical is this. It's one fruit with nine aspects. So really, a mature, growing Christian should be growing in all of the aspects of the fruit. They should all be evident. Now, as we go through the fruit of the Spirit, here's one thing that's a good, this is a good thing for us to do, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. As we look at the list of these aspects of the fruit, I guarantee you there's probably one or two, but let's just leave it to one, that you and I struggle with more than the others. Okay, so there's probably one of the nine that like, man, that's the one that I have a hard time in my life with. Um, For me, it's patience. And so it may be different for all of us. But tonight, we get to the first aspect or the first part of the fruit of the Spirit, and that is love. And obviously, Paul always starts his list with love. So what's the first and second greatest commandments? Matthew 22, 37-39. He said to them, this is Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the great commandment? Love God. What's the second great commandment? 
love your neighbor. So, so loving God and loving our neighbor is like the, the top thing we're supposed to do as a Christian. Now, I could start and say, okay, everybody, get to work loving your neighbor. And you'd be real like depressed. It's like, okay, I know I'm supposed to love, but what is love? How am I supposed to do it? Um, I want to set a foundation here for you because you and I cannot begin to love until we understand God's love for us. So hear me very loud and clear. God's love for us always comes first and serves as the foundation for our loving other people. You love other people because of the way God loves you. So let's look at three theological truths real quick tonight about how God has loved us. So the first takes place even before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even created, God loved us in the doctrine of election or predestination, whatever you want to call it. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, key word there, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, because God loved us, before we even, think about this, before you even existed, before your parents even came together and dated, God had a special love for you in eternity past. God's love for you is eternal. Now, Gerhardus Voss, he's uh, um, at the turn of the 1900s. Uh, He was a a Dutch theologian that came to America, but he said this. He made this powerful statement. The reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began. Stop and think about that for a moment. (laughs) The reason God will not stop loving you is because he never began. Now you think, "Well, well, what do you mean God never began loving me? Was there ever a point when God started loving you or in eternity past has God always loved you? Kind of wrap your mind around that one. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Now, why did God love us? Why did God love Israel? Why did God love us? Why did God choose us? Um, Is it because God looked down and said, Jerry Applegate's going to be this awesome, stellar Christian, and because he's so wonderful, I'm going to choose to love him? Yeah, we all know that's probably true, right, Jerry? (laughs) What was the reason why God loved us? Deuteronomy. 7, 7 through 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Why did God choose you? Answer. Because God wanted to. Well, why did God want to? Because God loves you. Well, why did God love me? Because God wanted to. Was there anything in me that moved God to love me? No, God did it because God loves you. Well, what what about me makes God love me? There's nothing in you that makes God love you. God chooses to love you. Now, Charles Spurgeon said, I'm almost positive God chose me before I was born. 
Because if he waited till after he was born, he would have never chosen me at all because I would have been a rotten scoundrel and totally would, you know, been this really bad person. So God had to choose me before I was born. He's kind of playing a little joke there. But the point is, you and I will never begin to understand how to love others until we first really understand how much God loves us. And I'm not here to stroke your ego or or be like some big self-esteem guru, but sometimes we as Christians just need to stop and think, there was nothing in me that moved God to love me. He loved me simply because he loved me. And it's an eternal love. It's a powerful love. It was a love that he showed even before I was born. So that's a love that happened before eternity or before the, the foundation of the world. Now, regeneration. Okay, this is that moment in time where God caused you to be born again. God gave you new life. So how did God love you when he caused you to be born again? Well, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this. But God, listen to the wording here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. The great love with which he loved us. God made us alive. God regenerated us. God caused us to be born again because of his great love. And then Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Why did God cause you to be born again? Because he loved you. Why did God choose you? Because he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses. Okay, third theological truth. Okay, we've looked at election, regeneration, justification. This is when God declares us not guilty. So when we trust Christ for salvation, God declares us not guilty. He credits the righteousness of Christ to us. And why did he do all that? Why did he send Jesus? Why did God save us? Uh, Romans 5, 5 through 8. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's here's what I'm saying. Before we talk about how we love others, it always starts with how God loves us. And when you understand God's love for you, that should overflow to others. So God loved us with an eternal love, a choosing love, a predestining love, a regenerating love, a justifying love, a gracious, amazing love. Now, let's ask the question. What is love? I'm reminded of the Tina Turner song from the 80s. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Is that all it is? It's a second-hand emotion who cares about love? Okay, what is, what is love? Now, if I were to go out to NJC, to college students, or I were to go over to Walmart or Home Depot or go to Pioneer Park and just stop people and say, what's love? I'd probably get a lot of different answers. Just listen to the songs that come out on the radio about love. Okay. So the question is, what is biblical love? Because our culture 
I think merely or only or solely defines it as an emotion. And often it's more equated with lust than it is really with true love. So love is an emotion. It's an attitude. But it's also a volitional act. It's, it's something you, you show in actions. It's something you choose to do. Now, go back to Galatians chapter. We're in Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul's basically saying, listen, the whole book of Galatians is about these Judaizers that are coming in and trying to add circumcision as a requirement for salvation. And Paul's like, listen, that doesn't matter whether you're circumcised, whether you're not. What really matters in the Christian life is, are you living out your faith through love? He says, what counts is faith working through love. Okay, go to verses 13 and 14 in this same chapter. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is filled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. He just repeats it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Faith working itself through love. The Christian life is living out your faith through love. Okay. We're going to take a little detour from Galatians. This is Paul. We're going to go to John's writings because the, the, the Apostle John wrote more about love in particular than probably any of the other New Testament writers. So the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, gives us three commands to love one another. And these all come from Jesus. Okay, so three times Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. So John 13, 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this all people will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus point blank there says, I'm giving you a commandment. What's the commandment? Love one another. And how are people going to know that you're truly disciples? How are people going to know we're Christians? I've said this many times from that pulpit, I guess I'm from this pulpit, by the, the fish on the back of your car, by how loud you play K-Love, by how big your Bible, how, how do people truly know you're a Christian? It should be by your love. We as Christians should be the most loving people. But sadly, go back to Galatians 5. Your Bible is probably open to Galatians 5. Look at verse 15. Right after Paul says, love one another, Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. What do we often do as Christians? Bite and devour one another. I'm like wild animals attacking each other. So three times in John, that's the first. Okay, John 15.12, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Second time. And then John 15, 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Now let's just stop right there. When Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, when Jesus gives a commandment, what does that mean? What's implied in a commandment? You better, it's something we're commanded to do, right? So here's the point. Is loving one another an option? No, I don't feel like I want to love other people. 
Jesus gives it as a command. This is my commandment. So three times in the Gospel of John, pretty much, very point blank, Jesus commands us, love one another. Now, this is recorded by the Apostle John in the Gospel of John, who heard it from the words of Jesus. Now, let's go in our Bible. So we're jumping out of Galatians. We're going to jump to 1 John. 1 John. This is the epistle right there before you get to Revelation back there. 1 John gives us four teachings on loving one another. And they're kind of all strung together, but I've kind of divided them up in, in, into four major teachings. So John takes the teachings of Jesus and he reiterates it in 1 John. So let's look, um, and we're just going to, hopefully you have your Bibles open because we're going to explore these passages together in 1 John. So 1 John 3, 11 through 15. 1 John 3, 11 through 15. Is everybody there in 1 John? Almost? For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, so it's interesting there. How does John start it in verse 11? This is the message that you've heard from the beginning. What what does that mean from the beginning? What's John saying? Okay, Jesus told it to you three times. I'm telling it to you because I'm repeating Jesus. This has been... Basically, what John's saying is this is basic Christianity from the very beginning. The, the, the major way you live out your Christian faith, going all the way back to the beginning of what Jesus taught us, is that we are to love one another. To love one another. And then he gives the example of what it doesn't look like to love, and that's Cain, by, by murdering. Now, let's just stop real quick. Most of us would say, well, I'm not going to be like Cain and murder my brother. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about murder? You've said... Do not murder, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart, it's as if you've murdered somebody. So we may say, I'd never murder somebody, but we could actually want to assassinate somebody with our thoughts or have anger in our heart. So there in 1 John 3, John just reminds them, says, hey, this has been from the very beginning. This is nothing new. Don't be surprised at this teaching. We are to love one another. Okay, let's go down to uh, the second occasion here. Let's go to 1 John 3, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. Where did he command it? We just looked at it three times in the Gospel of John. So John's just saying, listen, Jesus commanded this, We have no option. It's his commandment. We are to love one another. Okay, let's go to 1 John 4. This is probably the most famous passage. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Okay. Verse 7. Let us love one another. If you don't love, it's evidence that you're not really a Christian. And then he says, how did God show his love? Okay, did, did God merely love us in the abstract. Think about it. Did God say, I love you so much I'm going to send you a Hallmark card to open and read my wonderful syrupy words to you? Did God say, I love you, 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 wrote it in the sky? And how did God prove his love? Was it mere emotion? Look at what verse um, verse 9 In this, the love of God was made manifest. That means it was made clear. It was put on display for all to see. God did something specific. God's love is not some abstract concept, but was actually demonstrated, put on display at a definite point in history when he sent his only son into the world. So God didn't just say, I love you. He showed it by sending Jesus, his one and only son. He did not spare Jesus. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. He did not spare Jesus. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God, for his inexpressible gift. I think the NIV calls it indescribable. Different translations have different. It's an inexpressible, indescribable gift that God gave. God is love. God calls us to love. And God didn't just say, I love you, but he, he demonstrated it in concrete action by sending Jesus to specifically die for us. But notice verse 12. No one's ever seen God. Now, interesting, no one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Interesting. Think about that for a moment. Has anybody ever seen God, the Father? No, even Moses on the cleft of the rock wasn't allowed to see him. What's John's argument here? How do people see God? How do people know God exists? How's God's love put on display that they can't see? What can people see? They can see you and me. So how do people see God's love? By looking at us and how we love one another. That's why in there in verse 12, no one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
So God's love is perfected. God's love is completing us. So the question is, okay, how does God keep continually perfecting or completing his love in us? How does that happen? Well, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. So how do you know God loves you? Okay, think about this. Think about the Trinity for a moment. God the Father loved you so much that he sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And when Jesus died and was buried and rose again and went back up to heaven, God loved you so much and Jesus loved you so much that they sent the Holy Spirit to come live inside you so that you could continually be experiencing the love of God. And does the Holy Spirit ever leave you? No, he always stays in you. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Father loves you. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit helps you experience that love on an ongoing basis. So all three persons of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay. In verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. That's not necessarily a command. It's a strong exhortation. Let us do this. It's, it's the right thing to do. Let us, I'm, I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you to love one another. And then in verse 11, he switches to a command. He says, beloved, we ought to love one another. So it is a command. So whether we like it or not, okay, there is a strong command upon our lives as Christians to love one another. It's an obligation. Jesus commanded it three times. John here is reiterating Jesus. He's commanding it. He's calling us to love. But then here's the point. You and I can't love in our own power. It's impossible to love without the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Why is it called the fruit of the Spirit is love? It's because the, the, the Holy Spirit supernaturally provides you and me with the grace and the power and the strength sustaining us to be able to continually love one another. Because let me just say it this way. It takes energy to love biblically. <laughs> okay? Where does that energy come from? comes from the Holy Spirit. So here's the main point of John's passage here. He says this. The more we enjoy God's love for us, the more that love will overflow to others. And we'll have the power to love one another because God's love will be perfected in us through the Holy Spirit that's producing that love in us. Now, I want us to think about the church for a moment because I'm, I'm making it kind of individual to you loving others. So let's just think about things for a moment. Um, 
I'm not saying you guys do this, but let's just say the average person that's looking for a church. Most people, let's say they look for, do they have slick programs? Do they have a killer website? Do they have great personalities? Do they have really great ministries? Do they have a big building? Do they have all the bells and whistles that make this church a happening place? But my point is this, can you have all those things and lack the one thing that's most important? What's the one thing that's most important? Love. You can have a big building. You can have great programs. You can have a great everything. But if there's no love among the brothers and sisters in Christ and no love for people outside the church, then we're not following these commandments that Jesus and John, the, the, um, the apostle, gives us. Now, I want to address three enemies of love. Three, I call them three ruthless enemies, okay? Three ruthless enemies of love. Why do we not want to love one another? What, what are enemies that are preventing us from loving one another? And um, we're all guilty of this, and so I'm not here to cast stones. I'm just saying we need to be aware of these enemies. So the first enemy of love is selfishness. Okay, here's what selfishness says. Selfishness says, I'm more important than everybody else, therefore everyone else must serve me. We end up using other people for our gains, whether we know it or not. Why? What's an enemy to love? I'm just too selfish because everything's about me. The world revolves around me. People exist to serve me. We were watching a movie the other night, Dawn and I, and I'd never heard of this syndrome. She's called it some type of syndrome, but it's a syndrome, it's a mental disorder where a caregiver, some of you may know it, the, the syndrome, a caregiver or a parent purposely hurts their child or causes harm to their child so they can come in and help the child so they per perceived as the savior. So like in this movie, this lady, this grandmother, purposely, um, like the, the grandkid was allergic to something, I can't remember, sesame seeds or something, and she purposely put sesame seeds in the thing so that the grandkid would do that. And she just happened to have the EpiPen, and she was able to come in and save the day and, and looked like this loving grandmother. Um, and so you can actually love other people in a very selfish way that draws attention to yourself. Um, so selfish, selfishness is an enemy of love. That's, that's ruthless enemy number one. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. Ruthless enemy number two is busyness. Okay, busyness. Busyness means we overplan, we overcommit, we overextend ourselves so that there's no time in our lives to cultivate genuine relationships and friendships with others. Here's what busyness says. My life is too complicated, therefore I will not invest in building relationships. I'm just too busy. My life's too hectic. My life's too busy. I don't have the time to try to build relationships with others and, and love others. Now, selfishness and busyness can kind of go together. I, I, the reason I'm so busy is because I'm so selfish. I mean, it, it ties together. But you've got selfishness. You've got busyness. And then here's the, the third enemy, 
Complacency. Complacency says you don't want to make the effort to foster new relationships. You want to avoid the messiness of getting heavily involved in others' lives. You may silently want deeper relationships, but you make no effort to actually grow in these areas. I'm selfish. I'm busy. And frankly, I don't care or want to make the effort. Those are ruthless enemies to love that we need to watch out for. And how easy are they to creep into our lives? Listen to the language that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8-9, through 9, when he talks about the congregation at Thessalonica. Listen to what he says. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8-9. through 9. So, being affectionately desirous of you, church family, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Do you see parts, Paul's language? We were so affectionate. We loved you so much that we didn't just want to come and preach to you the gospel. We didn't want to just come and share with you the truth. We did that, but notice what he says. We wanted to share our lives. We loved you so much that we wanted to invest our lives in you because we loved you so much. Can you say that about other brothers and sisters in Christ in your life? Do you have that same affection that Paul does? Or are we plagued by selfishness, busyness, or complacency? What was the problem of the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation? You remember? Remember the seven churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation? There's always something. Two of them didn't have anything really wrong with them, but five of the seven had a problem. Now, let me just give you some background about Ephesus. Ephesus was founded by Paul when he came to the city of Ephesus. He stayed there about two and a half years. When he left, after a certain amount of time, Timothy became the pastor of Ephesus. And then later on, the apostle John, who we just read, became their pastor. So think about who your three pastors have been if you're Ephesus. We had Paul, Timothy, and John. We got some deep theology from those dudes. That'd be like saying, okay, my three pastors growing up were John Piper, John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul. Those are my three pastors. <laughs> or whoever your list of, 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 like, okay, man, we, got, we know our theology. We were trained by Paul. We were trained by Timothy, who was trained by Paul. And we were trained by John. He was our pastor. But listen to what Jesus has against this church. That's th- they're theologically as straight as a gun barrel but they're lacking in one key thing. So Revelation 2, 2 through 5, this is to the church of Ephesus. Jesus speaks to him and says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those that call themselves apostles and are not and found themselves to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for many Abandon the love, uh, many for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So, John said, or Jesus says to them, "You guys have sound doctrine. You're not, you're not tolerating false doctrine. 
you're working hard, you have good theology, you're patiently, you know, bearing up under, under sound theology. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says this, But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does Jesus have against them? You, you've abandoned that love you had at first. Now, there's some scholarly debate here. Was it their love for Jesus or was it their love for one another? It's not specific enough to tell us, but I would say that... If your love for Jesus wanes, your love for each other is not going to be there either. So I can take it to be both, but let's just say this. This church was very, very theologically sound, but they didn't have a lot of love. So a church needs to have two things in their lives as a church. Now this comes from Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor of the Great Awakening. Um, he saw revival hit the church back in the, um, the 1700s. And he says that a church needs to have a balance of light and a balance of heat, light and heat. And this is how he describes it. Light, and this is what the church in Ephesus had. A church that has light means that they're theologically correct. They're doctrinally pure. They're holding fast to the truth of scriptures. They have a confession of faith. They know their doctrine. They know their theology. They have all of their theological ducks in a row. They are holding fast to the truth. Would we disagree with that? Do we want a church that's not that way? No. But at the same time, he says this, you also need heat. That is having a wild abandon and passion for Christ where you want to go deeper into knowing him personally and you love others. So here's the problem if those two things get out of balance in a church. If there's too much light, if that's all there is, then the Christian life can become cold, academic, very much focused on the mind, and it can breed intellectual snobbery. We have very, very sound doctrine around here, but we don't have love. Okay, if there's only heat... There's only love and no sound theology. Then you have groups that don't care about doctrine. And let's just all love Jesus and everything's drawn by emotion and there's no truth. So what's the healthiest Christian? What's the healthiest church? The healthiest Christian, and I would say the healthiest church, is one who knows doctrine and the truth of Scripture so deeply but yet at the same time is head over heels in love with Jesus and can't get enough of him, and there's love for others. So the church in Ephesus had great theology, but they didn't have the love. Some churches have a lot of love, but no theology. What I would say is you need both. Now, let's talk about love, because that's... You'll hear people in our culture today say, well, what you're saying is not that loving. It's not very loving to tell a person that they're going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. It's not very loving to tell somebody that their lifestyle is out of bounds with the Bible and if they continue that way, you know, I mean, that's not very loving. Let's not rock the boat 
and talk about doctrine because let's just focus on love. As long as they love Jesus, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you just love Jesus. Love Jesus, love others, and then the doctrine stuff will work out itself out. The, the biblical stuff, that'll work itself out. Okay, question. Can we ever sacrifice truth for love? Is it, quote-unquote, loving to withhold biblical truth to those who are unsaved? Let me ask it this way. What's more loving? To tell a non-Christian that it's okay that they continue doing what they're doing because after all, God is love and you can live however you want and there's no such thing as hell. Or is it more loving to say, what you're doing is wrong, there's a day of judgment, and if you don't repent and die in your sins, you will go to hell, which is more loving. The second one's more loving, but what do we often think? We play that game, man, I don't, if I'm really strong with the truth, it may not come across as very loving. Well, let's see what Paul has to say about this. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to give us a couple of observations about this as we think about this question. Okay, he gave, this is Jesus. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to, to the church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, the key, key point there, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? What's the last word there? Builds itself up in love. Okay, so let's talk about some observations about this passage, about a healthy church, about what we're supposed to do. Do we ever sacrifice truth for love? Okay, so number one, first observation here, is that Christ himself has gifted the church with spiritual leaders to help equip us for serving one another. So pastors, teachers, leaders, Christ has given us the role of equipping the church to serve one another. Okay? Spiritual maturity, Paul would say, is a sign of a healthy church. That you're growing up to maturehood. That you're, you're growing spiritually mature. And he says spiritually mature Christians do not get carried off into false doctrine. You're not tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. I remember one time Don and I went to Cancun. And I like swimming at the beach and she likes being on the beach. Okay, She doesn't like getting in the water. So I was out there just playing around in the water. And the current, was, I didn't realize the current was so bad. And, like, I knew where our hotel was, and I kind of, like, looked, because I knew Don's towel was there, and I knew what our hotel looked like, because they all kind of looked the same, but you look. And so I'm just out there messing around, and da-da-da. Next thing I know, I look up, and I'm like, where's our hotel? I'm like, oh, my goodness. I was probably, like, about a half a mile down the beach. 
I got out and I just kept walking back because I didn't realize. I was out there. It was so much of an undertone and current. I was just obliviously going on, just going with the flow. And that's what Paul's saying here. If you're not careful, you can just get caught up in false teaching and you can get caught up in every wind of doctrine and just be tossed. He calls it tossed to and fro like the waves where you don't even know what's happening. So what do we do? Notice what he says there. Rather, we speak truth about doctrine, about the Bible, but we do so in love. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Speaking truth in love. Because some people, based upon their personality, may be more tempted to speak truth and I'm going to give it to you. Other people are a little kind of squishy and loving that they, they don't want to ever address the truth. What does Paul say? Speak the truth. Got to tell the truth. But you do it in a loving way. Um, our 20-somethings met last um, Tuesday night in our home. And some of them were telling about, we had some college students in there, and one of them was telling us at, um, I think it was uh, UNC, there was a guy that showed up with a microphone on campus and he was just yelling at the students about Jesus and like yelling at them and telling them to get saved and just yelling at the top of his voice. And they were saying how offensive it was. Like they said, I didn't disagree with what he was saying, but the way he did it, he was yelling. And I guess uh, somebody on campus had died and he was basically saying, that person died and went to hell and all this kind of stuff. And they don't even know, didn't even know who the person was. Um, eventually, they asked that person to leave, but that person may have been standing up speaking truth, may have been theologically accurate, everything they said, but the way they came across was there was no love in that at all. Um, I can sit down and have a conversation with an unsaved person and with all the love in my heart tell them there's a hell, it's real, and judgment's coming, and they need to trust Jesus and repent. Um, I can speak truth, we can speak truth in love, but Paul says here, the last observation, is that the ultimate goal of the church is for all of us to grow up into maturity. And how, what's the most, how does this express itself fully in love? How do you know a church is mature? Well, do they have sound doctrine? Yes. But are they loving? Is there love? So the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the first thing we looked at tonight. Is love a command? Yes. Jesus commanded it three times. John commanded it. Is it something we can produce in our own hearts? No. It's something the Holy Spirit's got to give us the power to do. Is loving others easy? No. Is it going to take time? My pastor going up says, how do you spell love? And I was like, L-O-V-E, pastor. He's like, no. Spell love, T-I-M-E. How do you spell love? Time. You got to spend time with people. What are the three enemies of love? Selfishness, busyness, complacency. So um, as we kind of wind down tonight, let's, let's make it practical. So I'm going to ask the question, and then I'm going to give us some um, things to think about. So the question is, how do you grow in love? How do you cultivate love? I could just leave you with nothing to say, okay, you're commanded to do it, now go love. Go out and love. I know you can do it. Go out there and love. 
Well, thanks, Pastor Sean. You've given me a lot of help tonight. So I'm just going to look at some practical things that you and I can do to help us love others. And ultimately, guys, I'm not, ultimately, I don't want you leaving here saying that I can do this in my own power. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit's got to produce this love in you. But there are some things that you can do to put yourself in a posture for the Holy Spirit to do His work in you. Okay? So, again, it comes back to God's love for you is always the motivation for you to love others. So here's the first thing I would say. How do you grow in loving for others? Plumb the depths daily of God's love for you in the gospel. Plumb the depths daily of God's love for you in the gospel. In other words, think about how much God loves you and then let that be the motivation for you to love others. Uh, Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's just look at that middle one. He will quiet you by his love. That word quiet in the Hebrew language can also mean renew or refresh. How often do we need to be quieted by God's love? Why would you need to be quieted? What's the opposite of being quieted? Why would you need to be quieted? Because what's our life usually like? Noisy, chaotic, busy, selfish. All these things are rolling around. And sometimes we just need to take time away and say, listen, I've got to get away and I've got to just stop and think. My heart needs to be quieted. And the way my heart's quieted is I've got to just think about how much God loves me. This, this is a chaotic world. There's chaotic things. Before I even begin to think about how I'm going to love another person, I really need to understand, first of all, how much God loves me in Jesus. I need to be quieted by his love. And then in 1 John 3, John says, See, or behold, or pay attention, what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. See what kind of love the Father's given unto us. He's called us children. John says, I want you to stop on your tracks, and I want you just to think about how much God truly loves you. Back in 2008, um, I read the book Communion with God by John Owen. That was written in the 1600s, so it's got some ancient language. But there's one paragraph that at the time in my life... So, okay, when you're... Let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but I'll, I'll answer it myself. When you're in a period of rebellion or sin or disobedience or not, not really paying attention, and it may not be flagrant sin, it could be just I'm not, I'm not with God where I want to be. I don't know about you, but sometimes my first reflex, my first gut reaction is to run away from God. I, I don't want to pray. I don't want to necessarily be in church. I don't want to be around anything that's going to remind me of God. I'm going to run from God. I'm going to try to deal with it on my own. That never works, <laughs> running away from God. So John Owen, and I'm, I rewrote this in more modern-day English, but I'm, 
It may not mean anything to you, but let me just read to you what he says. He says, when we see the love of God, we will delight in him. Once the heart is taken up with the height and majesty of God's love, we cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared to him. Exercise your thoughts upon the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father. And when you do this, you will find that your heart is wrapped up in delight for him. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly discover the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able to keep a distance from him for a moment. That's a long quote, but what's John Owen saying? Don't run from God. Sit down at the fountain and drink deeply of God's love for you. When you stop and think about God's love, you will be overwhelmed. You will be overpowered. You will be blown away at how much he loves you. Why do we love? Because God first loved us. God's love for us is always the motivation, the foundation for us loving other people. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. So how do you cultivate love? First of all, just think, ponder, spend time thinking about God's love for you. Did God have to love you? Was God obligated to love you? Did he choose to love you? Let's go back. Why did God choose to love you? Because he chose to love you. Well, why does God love me? Because he loves me. Well, that's a tautology. It doesn't make sense. It's, you're saying the answer with the answer. Why does God love me? Because God loves me. That's all I can answer. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. Why does, I can answer it a negative way. Does God love you because you bring something to the table that's worth God loving you? We can say no to that. The question is not, man, God loves me. The question is, why does God choose to love me? Because he's love and he's chosen to do that. So number one, think about God's love for you. Okay, number two. Okay, we're talking practical steps here tonight. How do you cultivate love? Okay, here's the second. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart for the three ruthless enemies. Just ask the Holy Spirit. Just say, okay, when I go home tonight, let me just ask the Holy Spirit to search me. Do I, do I suffer from selfishness? Do I suffer from busyness? Do I suffer from just complacency? I just don't care. So what does Psalm 139, 23 through 24 say? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, here's a question. Does the all-knowing, all-present God have to search your heart to find information he didn't know was there? No. What's the purpose of asking God to search your heart? Is it for him to find stuff? Oh, I'm God. I didn't know that was there. That really fooled me. What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is for you. You're asking the Holy Spirit to say, do a deep dive into my heart, search my heart to see what's there so that I can deal with it. Maybe you're not even aware of what's in your heart that's preventing you from truly loving other people until you actually take the time to ask the Holy Spirit, do a deep search in me. Search my heart. So I need to come clean with some of these things. I may be blinded to it. Holy Spirit, show me areas where there are some enemies to loving. Okay? All right, number three, 
And I think we'll have time for questions tonight if there is. Three, ask, and I'm saying ask the Holy Spirit on, on these because it's the fruit of the Spirit, and you have permission to ask the Holy Spirit to do this because that's one of his jobs is to, is to grow fruit in your life. Ask, number three, ask the Holy Spirit for strength to love those who are difficult to love. Don't raise your hand, but do you struggle with somebody in your life who's difficult to love or difficult to like? Don't re- <laughs> She's like, oh, right next to me. No, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's always somebody in your life, whether it's at work, whether it's in your own family, whether it's a neighbor, there's just somebody in your life that it's like, man, that person is difficult to love. What does Jesus have to say about this? Luke 6 32 through 33. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good those who, uh, who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What's Jesus saying? It's easy to love those that love you back. It's easy to do good to those who do good to you, but it's the people that you find difficult to love that maybe not reciprocate, that, that take a lot of energy, those are the hard people to love. And so Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 12 through 14, put on then or clothe yourselves as God's chosen ones. What are we supposed to clothe ourselves with, holy and beloved? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Ask the Holy Spirit for strength to love those who are difficult to love. And remember this. You may be a difficult person that someone else is trying to love. <laughs> You're like, come on. Let's not be like... Oh, Lord, I need help to love this person. You may be the person that another person is finding it difficult to love. So, number one, bask in God's love for you. Plumb the depths of God's love for you. Number two, ask the Holy Spirit to do this deep dive in your heart where he exposes to you the ruthless enemies. Number three, ask the Holy Spirit to give you strength to love those who are difficult to love. And here's the fourth one. This is very difficult. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now there may be, let's, 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 let's up the ante here. There may be those that are difficult to love and there may be those that are your enemies. And Jesus says, pray for them. Love them. Is that easy? No. That's why I said, ask the Holy Spirit for strength to do this. But oftentimes when you begin to pray for somebody, oftentimes um, God will begin to change your heart towards that person. And maybe it's you that needs to be changed more so than them. (laughs) Maybe they need to be changed too. But praying for your enemies. And then here's the last one, number five. Attempt to put hands and feet to your love 
when you see an immediate need. Attempt to put hands and feet to your love when you see an immediate need. Um, good intentions and loving are just good intentions. Um, words are good, but actions speak louder than words. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, the whole faith and works dead issue, that's a discussion for another time. The point that James is making is, you can look at a person that's in need and say, oh, you know, I'm really sorry that you're in trouble, and then walk on by. He's saying, if you see somebody, if you see an immediate need, meet that need in love. Let it be more than just mere words. Actually back it up with action. Okay? So here's my prayer for us. Actually, it's Paul's prayer for the Philippians. But it's my prayer for us tonight. And it's this. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer. Okay, so this is Paul's prayer. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's Paul's prayer request? That your love may abound more and more. What does it mean to abound? grow. Paul's like, listen, my prayer for the Philippian church, my prayer for all of us is that our love for each other would grow and grow and grow. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, the first thing tonight. So I know we've taken a deep dive on all the aspects of love. I've given you a lot of information. We've got about a few minutes left here to ask questions or comments or snide remarks or anything that you may need clarification on. So what are some questions or comments you guys may have? Clear as mud, huh? Yes, Jerry. Right. Did Adam and Eve see God? Well, I would say no one has seen God, even Adam and Eve, because God the Father is spirit, has no body. So if they saw God, it would have had to have been what we would call a theophany or an appearing of God, like in a way that, that would be... Um, not with a body. The, on, the only visible expression of God is Jesus, who has a body. Um, Moses saw the glory of God in the cleft of the rock. They heard God's voice, but I don't know if the Bible says they saw God. No, it's God, this is off the subject of our topic tonight, but that's no, fine. God... God interacts with his people through speaking to them more so than showing them.
with the exception of Jesus being on the earth as God in the flesh for those 33 years. How does God reveal himself today? Through the written word and through the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, I don't know if that answers your question, Jerry. Questions on love? Easier said than done. No questions? Our Brent, looks like you got a question. Come on now. Yeah, but it says, it says, my Lord said to my Lord, not I saw it. But Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord seated. But you know, that was Jesus that Isaiah saw. Because John tells us in John's gospel, it was Jesus who Isaiah saw on the throne. Exalted. Which would be the second person of the Trinity, not the first person of the Trinity. You guys are getting theological. I'm trying to talk about love, and you guys are like getting to these deep theological discussions tonight. Maybe... Too much light and not enough heat. No, I'm, no, I'm just joking. Any other final questions? Or I'll, I'll pray. All right, next week, joy. Each week we're going to look at a different, we're going to take a deep dive into each of these each week. So some of them relate to one another because it's all aspect of one fruit, but the foundation for tonight is love. And it's, it's the one that I think kind of binds everything together in perfect unity, the way Paul would say. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have tonight to look at your word. And Lord, we know that you've commanded us to love. It's, it's not an option. It's an obligation. But we also know you've given us your Holy Spirit to produce the fruit in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. So would you help us to evaluate our lives to see if we have these enemies? Would you give us strength to love those that are difficult to love? Would you help us pray for our enemies? Will you help us to put love into action? Uh, Lord, would we understand that your love for us is the motivation for us to love others? And so we are so thankful that you first loved us. The only way we can love is because you first loved us. So thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, that we might be saved. And so we love you. Help us to love our neighbor this week in very practical ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.